0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So I know it's been a while since I have released an episode on this podcast, and let me explain a little bit about what's going on. So I'd actually had a couple of podcasts recorded, ready to go, and was going to release them the last week of June, first part of July. I'm not I'm not remembering how it broke down. Anyway, I had a couple podcast episodes set to release. And then on a Friday morning, June 24th, the news broke pretty early that the Supreme Court had reversed Roe v. Wade, had overturned Roe v. Wade and constitutional right that women for 50 years, most of my life, had come to depend on had all of a sudden been overturned and was no longer a possibility in many states. Now, as you know, many states had trigger laws that went into effect or that was set to go into effect pretty quickly after that. And, you know, I I had some sessions that that Friday and many of them my clients were talking about that news and how they felt about it and the feelings they had around it. Now it kind of, I will say it kind of was a kick in the gut to me and also broke my heart at the same time. And I just felt like I couldn't go ahead and just release the next two episodes that I had already recorded as planned on the schedule that I had planned. And I felt like I needed to give myself some time. I wanted to record a podcast episode Just sharing my feelings about this new ruling and maybe put a perspective on it that, you know, was things that were things that I had some knowledge and expertise around. Now, I will say I spent a lot of time reading articles, listening to podcast episodes by those who were much more knowledgeable on the topic than I am, constitutional scholars legal scholars, experts or journalists who have been covering the Supreme Court for their entire career. And I wanted to hear what they were saying. I wanted to, you know, get their perspective and their thoughts because, again, they had way more ability to read things and to look at things through that lens than I did. And I didn't want to do a podcast episode where, you know, I just kind of repeated what I had heard them say or that I was reading what I had read that they had written. Although I think, you know, they were saying good things, not necessarily good news things, but, you know, they were putting things out there that I relied on and that I was reading and looking at. Again, not anything that was like, hey, people, it's not that big of a deal. You're overreacting. It's not what they were saying. But I thought I want to, you know, stay in my lens. I'm not a constitutional Scholar. I'm not a legal expert or a, you know, Supreme Court expert. I wanted to stay in my lane and talk about this um, through the perspective of a mental health professional and as a female myself and the mother to four daughters. I wanted to be able to talk about it from my lane. And I also had to give myself some time to wrap my head around what I wanted to say and what I wanted to put out there. Now, I probably recorded. I don't know, six, seven, eight episodes and I would record them. I mean, these were sometimes, you know, two hours long, two hour plus long. And at the end of recording, I would kind of pause for a minute and then I would just hit delete and think, no, that was just, that was just for me. I just needed to talk that out and say that, but that's not something I wanted to release as an episode. I did that multiple times. Sometimes, you know, I would finish recording, I'd go to bed. It was late at night. I'd go to bed, wake up the next morning and be like, nope, that's not the one either. And I'd go in and delete it. And it took me, let's see, this was the end of June. It took me probably three weeks into July before I was like, okay, I am bringing together an outline in my head that I'm comfortable with that I want to use as the outline for this podcast episode. And You know, at that point, I had some things that timing-wise I needed to get to for my daughter's wedding that was coming up in September. And so that was taking the extra time, the excess time that I had in my schedule that was being filled by wedding stuff. So I got the wedding stuff completed, got everything done that I need to do at this stage in the wedding planning, and recorded the podcast episode that had been percolating in my brain And when I sent it to my office manager, she also produces and edits my podcast episodes and puts them out, she texted me and said, hey, there's a lot of static background noise on this podcast episode, and I think you're going to want to re-record it because it really kind of interferes with being able to hear the podcast episode. So re-recorded that podcast episode, got it sent to her similar, like, And I had had a couple of podcast episodes prior that she was saying had some static and but it wasn't consistent and so wasn't sure what was wrong. And so I thought, I'm going to maybe get a new mic. Maybe it's my mic. I don't know what is going on. So got a new mic, re-recorded the podcast episode on a new mic, sent it to her. And she said, you know, the background noise isn't as bad, but it's still pretty bad and I mean, who wants to listen to a podcast episode, especially one that's pretty lengthy with a lot of background noise? That would just irritate me. It would irritate me to put it out, but it would, you know, annoy me to listen to it as well. So I said, okay, I'm going to re-record it again. And I don't remember if this is the, I think this is the third time that I am re-recording this podcast episode since I actually had the outline in my head that I wanted to put out for this podcast episode. So she also had let me know that the other two podcast episodes that I had initially recorded and planned to release on schedule in June had similar background static and noise and really weren't good enough to be released. And so scrapped those two that I was kind of thinking I was ahead of schedule and then to learn that I wasn't. So I will be re-recording those two as well. And I think from what I have researched and figured out is that somehow in the app that I record my podcasts, somehow the settings got shifted or I'm not sure what happened. But as I'm recording this one, I did a couple of tests beforehand. I'm not hearing background noise. And so hopefully this is the podcast that actually gets produced and released tomorrow. So that was kind of a long break from the podcast that I was not intending to take and, you know, had to get some other things done in the meantime and then figure out what the noise was that uh, was just kind of staticky in the background. So here we go. And, you know, I'm not trying to hype up this podcast episode because I don't know that it's that fabulous. It just took me a really long time to actually get it released. It took me, you know, a good couple weeks to think about it and to, you know, like I said, I went through many different versions of podcast episodes before I, before this particular outline came to me. And once I've had this outline, it's lasted, which I guess is good news that consistently now for a couple of weeks, this has been the outline in my head that I feel good about. So I don't want to overhype it or anything, make it out to be something that it's not. It's just been, you know, dealing with my own, emotions around this and my own thoughts around this, wrapping my head around the news, then having to do some wedding things, then dealing with technology issues which if you know me, technology issues is nothing new. So now we're I'm back and we're ready to go. So one day when I was driving home from work in my car, I was, you know, thinking about this is now over a month ago. I was Just thinking about what I wanted to say on this podcast episode, maybe how it could make sense to me. I don't recall what I was thinking back then when I was driving home from work, but I did recall on that commute home, which is not a super long commute, but I recalled a podcast episode that I had listened to like a month or so earlier when I was swimming. Actually, it would have been like maybe two months earlier. when I was swimming. So typically when I go swim laps at the pool I have an mp3 player that's waterproof. I download podcast episodes and listen to that while I swim. It's a great swim. I like listening to podcasts while I swim and you know you have to kind of get the right podcast so it doesn't have a ton of commercial breaks because while the commercials aren't super long on podcasts when you're swimming it can feel like it's really long and Unnecessary, and so one of the podcast episodes that I frequently listen to when I'm swimming is *This American Life*, which is I think the first podcast that I ever listened to back in the day, and I still love it. I think they do great work, and I'm still listening to the podcast. Um, now I listen to them mostly when I swim, and you know, if because I'm current and I swim more than once a week, um, I'm going back into the archives and listening to other podcast episodes. But on this particular day in early May, it was a new episode. And so it was released actually on May 8th, 2022. And if you are familiar with the podcast, This American Life, they typically do like two or three, they'll cover a topic. And under the topic umbrella, they typically have like a couple of, I would say, maybe chapters looking at that particular topic or from a different angle. And so... This one I was listening to, it's episode 770. And I think this was the middle chapter. I don't remember. Maybe there was three. Sometimes there's four. But I want to say it wasn't the first one. I think it was more of the along the lines of the second, if I recall correctly. I did go back and listen to this particular part just to refresh my memory on it. And so this particular section of the podcast was covered by Hannah Jeffrey Woods and she's interviewing Mary Coss who is a social psychologist and you know she asks her at the beginning of the podcast episode or this section she asks her you know what is she famous for and Mary Coss kind of dodges that question and is like you know I feel like a you know athlete whose biggest claim to fame came when I was really young and Something I haven't really been able to top or outlive. And even though I've done other things in my adult years, I feel like that's what I'm best known for, right? So she's not necessarily content, maybe, with what she is best well known for. So her story starts in this particular episode, starts when she's 27 years old. It's 1976, and she is a new professor in the psychology department at Kent State. And She's arriving for her first day at work and she's walking in, you know, one side of a door and sees a professor rushing out the other side of the door. And this other professor recognizes her as potentially the new hire, which my guess is back in 1976, if your department hired a female professor and she was young, 27, there's not a ton of female professors that were being hired back in 76 would be my guess. She doesn't say that. And so not hard to recognize that this young woman walking in would be, that doesn't necessarily look like a college student would be the new professor that they hired. And he turns to her and says, hey, I just had a grant turned down because I'm a man. And so I need you to put your name on it so that it will get approved. And, you know, she has the wherewithal to say to, her, to him, well, if it's something I'm going to put my name on, I should read it first, which is always a good rule of thumb. And so she says, I'm, you know, reading through his research proposal. And basically the research proposal consists of this. So he has different female graduate students dress up in different sizes of bras so that it would look or it would appear that their bust size was different based on the bra that they were wearing. And then they would go interact with an undergraduate male, kind of innocuously, nothing. She didn't really talk about what that interaction was. It wasn't necessarily a significant reaction or they weren't interacting with this undergrad male as a researcher or a grad student or anything like that. They would just kind of interact with this undergrad male student and then walk away. Now, up to this point, the male undergrad student is unaware that he's part of this research and at this point somebody would come in ask him to take a survey based on this interaction and he would have to answer questions kind of based on a rating scale questions that included things like how rapable did you find this female that he had just interacted with or how likely do you think she is to have sex with you or if this female was raped, how culpable would she be? So yes, the researcher, this male professor, wanted to research and understand the rapeability of women. And he had a theory that the conditions were based on a female's bust size. And Mary Koss says, you know, I, I started to wonder, as a good researcher would, if this research show something? What are the policy implications from this? Because any federally funded research should have policy implications. And, you know, she says the only one I could think of was that somehow their government would have to fund minimizer bras for women who were larger bus sizes so that they wouldn't be likely to be raped. And she says, you know, the thing that I found most offensive in his proposal, was that he was looking for the causes of rape, and he was associating that with a woman's bust size, which, you know, she has no control over that, especially in 1976. And Hannah Jeffrey Wells, at this point interrupts and says, right, I mean, why not butts or hips? Like, why are we just limiting this to to bust size? Mary Koss says, I'm sure if I look deeper, you know, I would find a lot more problems, but she didn't look too much into it before she determined that she didn't really want to be on this research project. But she was in the market for a research project. And, you know, within his proposal, um, as she got reading, looking a little bit deeper, she said he did say that there would need to be a survey of college students just to determine how much rape was actually happening among them. And She thought to herself, well, there's the great opportunity. Like this other research that he's proposing, not so great. The great opportunity is looking at how often is rape happening for our college females. She said at that time, there were no academic studies on sexual aggression. The federal crime statistics had measured incidents of rape, but she said the only way that they were determining an incident of rape was simply by asking the question, have you been raped? And she said there were so few yeses that researchers would have concluded that r- rape was a very infrequent crime. And so she thought as a good researcher, again, like, well, asking women if they've been raped is kind of like asking an alcoholic, are you an alcoholic? Most of them say no, right? And, and you don't ask them, are you an alcoholic? You ask questions like, how many drinks do you have? And different things like that, right? If you have this many drinks, then can you stop? So she said, you know, I I looked at the legal definition of rape and I thought, well, maybe I can look at this legal definition of rape and create some questions based on this legal definition of rape. And so she did that. So some of these questions included questions like, have you had someone use force or try to harm you in order to have sex with you? Another question was, have you had sex when you did not want to? Another question was, have you had a man penetrate you against your own will? And she said, now I understand these are very gendered questions. I recognize that. This was the 1970s. You know, since then, we now know that rape is not something that only happens to females. And, you know, she said, but at that time, they were gendered questions. And we were really trying to understand what the frequency of rape was was among college students at Kent State. So she said, you know, when I started to design these questions around the legal definition of rape and ask women these questions, they would say, well, yes, that happened. But then if I asked them, have you been raped? They would say, no, I haven't been raped. So they could endorse the questions that were designed around the legal definition. But when it came right to asking that question of have you been raped, they would say no. And she said, what I quickly came to realize is that we had what she called at the time unacknowledged rape victims. And she said where under the legal definition, these women had been raped, but they didn't experience what happened to them as a rape. She said, you know, there was a common report that women would say it was one of the most horrible things that have ever happened to them in their life and that it had a profound impact on them. They just didn't apply that word rape to what they had experienced. She said, now at the time in 1976, the common perception of rape was that it was something that happened, you know, in dark alleys, maybe um, a stranger jumping out from behind a bush and assaulting a woman. Maybe it was a stranger breaking into a woman's house or hiding in her car unbeknownst to her. She said, but what we didn't think, we did not see that rape happened with boyfriends or acquaintances or someone in your family or a friend of the family or on a date. And she said, you know, when she completed the surveys, asked the women the questions, what she found was that one in four met the legal definition for rape or attempted rape. Like maybe it didn't actually happen, but... Aside from some intervention that ended up not allowing the rape to complete, it hadn't happened, but it was an attempt. And she kind of pauses and says, you know, like, we have to recognize that one in four is a more common rate than alcoholism. It's a more common rate than heart attacks. And it's a more common rate than left-handedness. So again, we're going from the federal statistics saying it was very rare to a number of one in four. And she said, so started calling it acquaintance rape or hidden rape, where, you know, it was hidden from the victim. And if it's hidden from the victim, it has to be hidden from society. But the term that actually caught on and that is still used today is, you're probably thinking of this, it's state rape. And she said, you know, it's, something I'm best known for. It's something I'm also really tired about talking about. Now, why would somebody who discovers this social phenomena that's happening be so tired of talking about it, especially when it's something that she is best known for? So they did go on in this um, section of the podcast and she said that she published her findings in the 80s. So she replicated her findings in the 80s and published them. And she said, I just was not expecting the backlash that I got when my findings were published. You know, they talk about different uh, newspaper headlines, things like date rape equals rape hype, that rape hype betrays feminism. And in a Newsweek article, the headline was sexual correctness. Has it gone too far? Question mark. She was actually asked on a program to talk about her findings and ended up debating Hugh Hefner, who had brought some of his Playboy bunnies along for the fun. She said, I just wasn't expecting this backlash. My work was discounted. I was disbelieved. I was blamed as a bad researcher. And the interviewer asks her, like, do you see the parallels between you know, women who have experienced rape and are not believed, and the researcher who shines a light on what is happening and is also disbelieved and discounted. And, you know, Mary Koss kind of pauses and is like, no, I actually haven't thought about that until just right now. In this podcast episode is when that occurred to her when she's being asked that question. However, in the 80s, there was some attention that caught on on college campuses. So college campuses launched education programs, rape prevention programs, things like Take Back the Night started. Um, Women shelters opened. Women exclusive shelters opened for the first time. And Congress passed the Violence Against Women Act in 1994, which she, Mary Koss, had testified before Congress about her research and her findings. Now today, we all think of rape differently because of her. I don't I don't know anybody who isn't familiar with the term date rape and what it is. And so the interviewer asks Mary Koss, like is because of this attention that caught on in the 80s is the rate of reporting increasing? Rate rate of reporting to police, rate of women identifying themselves as rape victims has that increased from what it was 40 years ago? You know, have more women today realize that they have been raped than they did 40 years ago. And Mary Koss said, no. Now you have to stop and ask yourself, like, why aren't things better? Why aren't we now with this new lens that we have to view rape? Why aren't we as a culture, why aren't we as a society making things better? There was even a book published in 1988 that was about her work, titled, I Never Called It Rape. I mean, how much more clear can she be putting her work out there and talking about this issue? And yet in 40 years, nothing has changed. Now, she did help society see rape differently. But she says it did not change the way a woman or an individual sees it when they experience it. Now, her numbers and her research have been replicated multiple times. They've been replicated by her, and they've been replicated by other researchers. And we still come to the same number, one in four. Sometimes it's one in five, but we're landing in the same range, one in four, one in five women who experience rape. Now, she says, at the time when I was doing this researcher and seeing this unacknowledged rape victim... My premise was that if I could change the way that victims understood rape, there would be less rape. So looking back even to this initial male colleague's research proposal, right, he's squarely putting the responsibility on women for being rapable and not on male perpetrators for committing rape. And Mary saw that issue. And she saw the problem with that issue. But here she is saying, my premise was still that if we could change the way that victims understood rape, the numbers would go down and there would be less rape. She says, today, I'm very clear. She's still a professor. I think she's teaching and living in Arizona currently. She says, I'm very clear today that nothing will change until perpetrators change how they see rape. And she talked about how she has you know, been in prison centers talking to males who've been incarcerated because of sexual assault crimes. And she says, I truly believe they could take a polygraph and pass because they literally do not believe that what they did was rape or that what they did was wrong. And she says, and I can open the law book and read them the definition, the legal definition of rape and see the blood drain from their face as maybe for the first time, They recognize that what they did actually was rape and that it meets the legal definition of rape. Now, Hannah Jeffrey Wolds ends this particular part of that podcast episode with, you know, she says, it's not that Mary Koss missed what was happening, right? What was missed is our ability to not know things. So, this next part, it might seem initially like I'm going on a little bit of a tangent, but. I will bring it back in to the podcast episode. So I am a licensed clinical social worker, so abbreviated LCSW. That means I have a master's degree in social work. Now there are a couple of other degrees that are also going to lead to a degree in which you would practice therapy of some type. So there is the marriage and family therapy degree And when you're fully licensed, so for all of the fields, after graduation, each state varies, but there tends to be a number of hours that you have to work and have that work supervised by the same person in order to get fully licensed. So to receive your L is kind of what we talk about in the field. So prior to being an LCSW, you're a CSW And so you have to work so many hours and you have to pass your licensing exam. Each field has their licensing exam or two that you have to pass in order to get fully licensed. So in the marriage and family therapy degree, it would eventually turn into a LMFT. So a licensed marriage and family therapist. You can also get a PhD in marriage and family therapy. I mean, you can get a PhD in probably all of these. You can get a Doctorate of Social Work. You can get a Doctorate of Marriage and Family Therapy. But I believe that the licensing is still an LMFT. Um, That's with your state licensing board. And then the third field that's going to lead to the ability to practice therapy is the clinical mental health field. So that's the CMHC. And, you know, sometimes I get people who know me or friends whose kids are thinking about going down the path of, you know, eventually becoming a therapist. And they'll, you know, message me or text me if they have my number and just say, "Hey, my kids thinking of doing this. Would you mind, uh, you know, doing a phone call, let them ask you the questions?" Sure, happy to do that. I also sometimes we get just inquiries through our website with individuals saying, "Hey, I'm thinking about going into this field. Could I talk to somebody or answer a few questions?" Also happy to do that. You know, one of the questions I get asked as an owner of a group practice is do I have a preference on what degree I hire for? And the answer is no, I don't. I hire MFTs, I hire social workers, I hire CMHCs. I'll also hire prior to them becoming fully licensed. In fact, that's probably the majority of clinicians that I have on staff start with me before they are fully licensed, although I'm not opposed to hiring somebody who is fully licensed when they start working for Healing Paths. So I don't necessarily feel like there's, you know, one degree is better than another. Some people, you know, when I'm initially talking to them, if they think that they want to work with couples, you know, they're under the impression that they have to get a marriage and family therapy degree because, you know, in the title, it kind of insinuates that they'll get it they're going to be working with couples and family systems and you know you can that's certainly a big emphasis uh, in the MFT educational program but it's not like CMHCs couldn't also work with marriage and family therapy or LCSWs can also work and do couples counseling and family work it just kind of depends on where you end up working after graduation so the other question I commonly get asked, which is even more of a tangent here, is do I have a preference between online schools and in-person schools? Now, definitely post-COVID, any stigma associated with online schools, I think, is just gone. But even prior to COVID, I had hired clinicians who had graduated from a fully online program and did not see much of a difference between those who had received their degree through an online program versus an in-person program. So for me, that hasn't necessarily been one of the things that I'm looking for when I'm hiring, the degree that they're graduating in or, you know, what, whether it was online or in person. Now I've been in the field for a long time. And so you know, back when I graduated into this field, obviously online programs weren't a thing. The internet was just getting started and schools and universities definitely had not started offering online degrees. That changed, I would say, maybe within the first decade that I was in the field. And even then, I don't know that I heard much. I wasn't in a position of like hiring people, but I didn't hear much stigma around, the online degrees versus the in-person degrees. You know, maybe some older clinicians who were coming into the field later in their career life, you know, maybe as a second career, or maybe they were, you know, mostly employed in their home, you know, just doing mom stuff or dad stuff, raising kids, all of the work that that entails, and now they're entering the field at an older age. Usually, back then, the online programs worked better for a individual who had a job or maybe he still had kids, that type of stuff. But I didn't necessarily hear much stigma around it because the thing is you have to, you don't have to, right? But if you're looking for an online program or an in-person program, one of the things you're going to want to be aware of is, is it an accredited program? If it's an accredited program, for the most part, they have to, all the programs, so all the MFT programs, if, if schools offer an MFT degree and, and it's an accredited program, they're pretty much teaching similar things to other MFT programs. There might be some things for that particular school, but if they're accredited, they have to meet certain standards in order to be accredited and to keep their accreditation. That's similar for the CMHC degrees, that's also similar for the social work degrees. However, I will say as a social worker, it was one of the first degrees available. You know, when I was graduating into the field, marriage and family therapy wasn't new, but it was newer than like a social work degree. So social work started, I think like around, you know, early 1900s. And if I'm remembering correctly, this is taking me way, way back to my social work 101 class. Social work kind of started with middle to upper class women seeing social injustices. Now, each degree is going to have maybe their own approach to things. From what I can tell, you know, I talk to, I work with people who are CMHCs, I work with people who are MFTs. It it doesn't sound like they're not being taught something similar in the social work program, but one of the basic tenets of the social work program is, you know, that we're looking at social justice and, you know, we're looking at it in the macro, the meso and the micro. So we're looking at it from big, like how does it impact countries? How does it impact the world? That type of stuff. Then, you know, mezzo, we're looking at it more like how does it impact your local community? It's not the large scale, it's more of a medium scale down to the micro, which could be that family unit, it could also be that individual. So that's one of the big pieces in social work is social justice and social advocacy. Now, I would say, you know, as I've talked to my MFT colleagues or my CMHC colleagues, they also are being educated around social justice, social advocacy, probably not to the extent that social work does, but not to an extent that isn't helpful. MFTs, I know, are really big on theory and, you know, family systems. Again, I learned back when I was in school in the mid-90s, I learned about family systems, but I think MFTs kind of hit that a little bit harder than a social work program. So you have your slight variances, but you know, a school education really needs to help you graduate with some basic competencies in their particular field. Now, I often say to new interns that are working with us or people that I'm talking with who are thinking of going into the field that your, your best learning in this field takes place after you graduate. But you need that degree in order to open up some of the trainings that are really going to help you develop sharp clinical skills and more of an understanding and just kind of make you a more seasoned is the word we kind of use. You know, you're a seasoned therapist. You've got some time in the field and your clinical skills are on board and you've kind of gone through a learning curve. School, you know, helps you with that. But there's a lot of things you don't learn in school that you encounter in the job. So long kind of tangent there about a 10-minute tangent there, that I wanted to talk about social work. So initially, again, I, social work was, you know, the most common degree back in the 90s when I was looking at at uh, getting a degree. It wasn't that the MFT degree wasn't a thing, but I will say there were more schools with social work programs, masters of social work programs, than there were masters of marriage and family therapy. So one of the reasons I think I you know, kind of went into the social work was just that there were more programs available. And so for me, you know, I've talked before, I think back in the summer of 2020, when all of the riots were taking place after the murder and death of George Floyd, I did a podcast episode that summer kind of talking just about racial issues and talked a little more personally about my family and some of the racism that I grew up hearing grandparents talk about just some, some of the different conversations that you know like intertwined as I'm a developing child and as a developing teen just being exposed to some of the language and conversations that were happening in my family not my not really my immediate family yeah there was some in my immediate family actually but I think I was talking more in that podcast episode specifically about both of my grandparents my paternal grandfather And my maternal grandfather. And so I had become aware, I feel like at an early age, like I even feel like, you know, hearing that at young ages, I'm thinking six, seven, eight, I knew about racism. I knew that that was racist. You know, I mean, part of it, my mom would always say to us, like, we don't repeat this. Like, this is not something you just talk about outside of, you know, grandpa's house or something like that. So, I was aware of that and aware that it wasn't appropriate by my mom, but my mom had her own shortcomings in her belief, probably influenced by her father's thinking. And I think also probably in high school, just kind of becoming aware of LGBTQ issues and some of the advocacy and social justice that lie ahead for the LGBTQ population. And so I I had that awareness, I had that kind of just in the background, you know, with some of it it wasn't necessarily something that got openly talked about. Like I don't really recall people around me making jokes at the expense of those in the LGBTQ population. And I also remember knowing people in my high school that were I assumed we never had a conversation, but I assumed that, you know, they were gay kind of when I was in high school it was you know you're straight or you're gay it was kind of that binary wasn't necessarily more flushed out the way that it is currently and i am assuming today looking back that they may have been made fun of during high school i wasn't aware of that and i did not participate in that but i just recall knowing in the background like oh this is my friend and i think he's gay like i just think I knew that and it turned out it's true he is and you know is in a relationship as an adult and but it wasn't necessarily something that I needed to know or that he came out around or anything like that I just recall knowing that having that awareness again more in the background maybe just chalk it up to the 80s you know but I think the injustice between genders took me the longest, to awaken to and to find the language around it. Maybe because, you know, that is the one that directly impacts me. You know, I'm, I'm white, I'm cisgender, I'm heterosexual, I'm straight, right? So those two issues that I had more awareness of weren't ones that necessarily impacted me directly as an individual or that I was identifying with. But the gender inequality was one, you know, when I look back, I'm like, when was I first aware of gender inequality? Now, again, I grew up in a conservative Christian religion. You know, I grew up in the LDS faith. And there's certainly gender inequality to this day, I feel like, in the LDS faith. And I feel like it was kind of just the water that I grew up in. And so I don't know that I necessarily questioned it or experienced it as Mary Koss, you know, was finding in her research. I don't know that my experience of it was that it was sexism or misogynistic. Although looking back there, I can see how those labels apply to some of my earlier experiences. I also came from a house where for the most part, my mom was a single mom. Now she was married, but my dad really didn't help at all in the household, in the child rearing. He was pretty much gone. You know, I was aware he came home at one point and would sleep at home and leave early the next morning. So I was aware, but he was never really home except for Sunday. Sundays, he was consistently home because he didn't work. Work was closed. And so he was home on Sundays. And so, you know, I grew up in a family where there were Three boys, three girls, so two girls, two boys, and then a girl and a boy is our makeup. And so initially, you know, me and my sister were the oldest ones, and we had to take care of the lawn. We had to mow. We had to trim. We had to, uh, at that time, we didn't really have blowers, so we were sweeping and clearing off the sidewalks and the driveway, that type of stuff. But we also were helping out cooking and learning how to cook and bake meals eventually, you know, when my next two siblings, my two brothers got old enough, my sister and I were working jobs. And so they typically took over the mowing and trimming and the yard work, but they also were learning how to cook. They were also learning how to bake. And then, you know, the final two siblings, my sister and my brother, similar things, right? They both took their turns mowing the lawn and trimming and, and also cooking and baking. And so, it wasn't in my family, there wasn't necessarily differences between the genders. There was when it came to dating and there was when it came to like curfew, that type of stuff, I would say there was some slight differences, but I was also older. So, you know, I don't know. I didn't know. I still don't know if there was just a difference because, you know, my older sister and I had kind of trained mom that like, it wasn't that big of a deal or if it was actually because the next two kids were boys. But I would say there were some differences when it came to relational messaging and dating messaging that was not the same for my brothers. But otherwise, you know, I, I mean, I recall my mom had to work. She was a school teacher for most of my, for most of her life. Um, eventually she got a master's degree and worked in the school settings as a school counselor but that was maybe in the last five years of her life and so you know mostly she was a school teacher and so we had a you know we had job chores lined out we had each of us had a night where we had to you know decide what we wanted to make for dinner it was our job to get that dinner prepped and on the table and cleaned up and we rotated through that and then on Sunday it was kind of all of us helping with preparing dinner and cleaning up the dishes, that type of stuff. so but all of us took turns um, as we rotated through with ages. All of us had to take turns planning and prepping dinner, you know, getting the ingredients on the uh, grocery list so that my mom could buy what we needed to for our the meal that we were in charge of. So some of those typical gendered roles that happen in families, that wasn't something that happened in my family. So I, I think, There are reasons why it took me longer to find the language, but I think one of the blaringly obvious reasons it took me longer to find the language is because it just seemed so normal. Patriarchy was the structure, right? It's just, in my mind, I thought, well, this is how it is. It's how it's always been. And so what was there to work towards for change? You know, women had already gotten the right to vote like I just you know I think some of that normalcy to patriarchy made me somewhat blind to the patriarchy in my life now so I want to talk for a minute about when we talk about patriarchy it's important to understand a couple of terms so when we think of patriarchy right if we're thinking of a definition of patriarchy I would say patriarchy is a ranking system You know, a kind of a way of how power is structured can be that way in a country, can be that way in a family, it can be that way in certain systems. Most of the countries even still currently have patriarchal systems. So patriarchy is a ranking system that really allows males to climb the hierarchy so that some males rule over other males. And all women, like women don't have that access to kind of climb the ladder of power. And so in patriarchy, power, you know, men have power over women. They have power over other men, depending on the hierarchy and who's at the top of the ladder. But it's not something that women are really ever given the power to do much of anything without the approval or the direction of the males in her life. Now, the next term, maybe to talk about, is benevolent patriarchy. So, benevolent patriarchy is a little nicer, like the title implies. It's a little more benevolent than flat out patriarchy. If you start, you know, reading some books or reading some history on the origin of patriarchy, it's pretty uh, misogynistic. So, let's talk about those two words, right? So, sexism, I would describe as a double standard, right? So if something is sexist, it's slanted against females and in favor of males. Now, sometimes I have people ask me, well, can't males experience sexism? Well, yeah. I mean, I I think again, it's one of those like, because they have under a patriarchal structure, they have more access to climb the ladder and to have authority. It's not going to land the same way for males as it is for females so you know just thinking males can do these things and you know we we question if females are even capable of doing things i think that comes from some sexist thinking misogyny on the other hand is more of a hatred towards women right so it's sexist plus so misogyny is more of this like real anger maybe some rage maybe some just really distaste for women that kind of displays this seething anger towards women. So that's more misogyny, right? Sometimes you hear the terms sexism and misogyny intertwined, and it might be confusing. Which is which? Are they the same thing? Are they different? They're different in definition. And I think different in the way that it feels when you experience it. But... That's kind of how those two things kind of are defined or how we look at the differences between those two terms. So benevolent patriarchy is probably not misogynistic. There's not really a lot of hate towards women, definitely still sexist. So, you know, some of the men that I've known and interacted with in my personal life, I would say they fall under that banner of benevolent patriarchy, kind of that thinking of, You know, I want you to be your best self. I'm going to cheer you on. And I want to provide you with opportunities for your own growth, for your best self. But, you know, and and I'm not going to abuse my position over you so that you don't have the outcome that you're working towards. But it still doesn't allow for me to have my own authority, right? I may have some males who are encouraging me or supporting me, but the fact that I need their encouragement or their support still says it's benevolent patriarchy because me as a female myself, I can't quite do that or I would be looked at unfavorably if I wanted to, to you know improve or to work outside the home or anything like that unless it's at the blessing or permission of the males in my life. So I think, you know, maybe in the, you know, I mean, when we look at history, I mean, I was born in the seventies and it was between the seventies and eighties when women gained the right to open their own checking account without a male having to co-sign or to be on the account, right? So female couldn't own her own home. She couldn't rent her own apartment without a male's signature guaranteeing something. So that's a good example of benevolent patriarchy. I'm I think it's great that you want to buy a home or I think it's great that you want your own checking account and I need to be on there to make sure, you know, nothing goes awry or you don't, I don't know, not figure out the basics of addition and subtraction in a banking account. So those are kind of the definitions and kind of the words that we want to work with. And I will say, I, th- I think, as you know, definitely for me, mother of four daughters helped me find the language as i was trying to give my daughters the language for some of their experiences i was kind of forced to figure out what that language was and i had to do my own work around that i had to educate myself i had to read i had to ask questions i had to understand things and so like again it's somewhat i feel a little bit embarrassed about the fact that it took me so long to find the language around that. I also understand how many obstacles were, or barriers to finding that language I encountered throughout my life. It makes sense to me, which maybe helps with the embarrassment that kind of comes up for me. So one of the things I haven't talked about, I don't think I've ever talked about it on a podcast episode yet. I don't know why. So one of my CSAT colleagues, He lives in Virginia and in 20, trying to think what year it was, maybe in 20, end of 2019 or 2020 into 2021, I think it was actually, we were doing some coaching together and, you know, we kind of got to know each other uh, more than normal as CSATs just because, you know, we were meeting every other week online and getting to know each other and, you know, getting to know more about our field and as a CSAT, also as therapists, but also getting to know some personal information about each other. And so during that time, there's another organization. I don't, I might've talked about them before on my podcast episode. So there's another organization called SASH. So ITAP is the organization that trains CSATs. And I mean, they do other stuff besides that, but they oversee the training of CSATs. SASH is a different organizations separate from ITAP, I believe still started originally by Dr. Patrick Carnes, but a different separate standalone organization. So SASH, S-A-S-H, stands for the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health. Now, when I was becoming a CSAT more than 10 years ago, part of our CSAT requirements in order to maintain that certification as a CSAT was that we were a member of SASH. I think maybe two or three years after I became a CSAT, they dropped that requirement as a CSAT. Now part of that, there was some fracturing in the field and I won't go into the details of that. Anyway, I think it still does good work. You do not have to be a therapist in order to be a member of SASH. It's a little more wide than just mental health professionals, licensed mental health professionals. And so... This CSAC colleague of mine had been getting involved during the pandemic. SASH was, I think that's when it started. It might have started previous to this, but my understanding was that's when SASH started providing some online discussions. They would assemble different panelists on a topic and have a discussion and record it. And, you know, I mean, you could also attend it live, but they would record it and then put it on their YouTube channel. So Sasha's YouTube channel. And so back in, I probably mid 2020, in one of our coaching meetings, the CSAT asked me like, hey, Sasha's going to be doing a panel discussion around patriarchy. And I'd really love it if you could be a part of that. I mean, that's right up my alley, right? And so I said, yeah, I absolutely can be a part of that. And so we recorded the first panel discussion in January, just this year, January 2022. And that is available and on Sasha's YouTube channel. And then in June, we recorded part two of that discussion, continuing that discussion on patriarchy and its impact on women. And part two was more about, you know, some of the impacts of patriarchy on males. You know, I I think while patriarchy definitely benefits some males who are able to climb to the top it can also be detrimental to other males because again a a power structure like that doesn't really allow for power to all and so I think you know patriarchy does damage to males as well and I'm not sure why it's such a still such a prevalent power structure you know I, I think it came in at quite the cost. You know, it came in over time and seems to me to be quite intentional and violent and it's still lasting, right? So back a couple years ago, one of the books that I read, you know, sounded like a great book, was The Creation of Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner. Definitely recommend that book, although just a disclaimer, There are times when you're reading it that it knocks the wind out of you. I definitely felt that. Like there were just times that it knocked the wind out of me. There are other times it broke my heart. And usually I would have to put it down and just kind of hit pause and be like, okay, I'll have to pick it up again. But right now, either the wind got knocked out of me, my heart broke based on what I was reading. And then the other book that I really highly recommend. If, if anybody's asking me what two books would you start with, I would say The Creation of Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner and The Chalice and the Blade by Rhianne Eisler. Now both of them have more than just that book and I've read more than just those books of theirs and recommend doing so. Both were written incidentally in the 80s. So I think one was written maybe in, if I'm remembering correctly, one was written like in 84 and one was written like in 86. I probably first read them, I don't know, maybe eight years ago. And I remember at the time I was reading it, I was like, how, how have I not known about these books? Like they were written in my lifetime. I mean, today Rianne Eisler is still alive. Gerda Lerner has passed away, but Rianne Eisler is still alive. I'm like, these are contemporaries, right? These are people who lived during my life. I mean, they're not the same age as me, but they lived during my lifespan. And part of the things that maybe just hurt my heart were like when I would read, you know, both of them seemed to be thinking when they were writing these books in the 80s that change was coming and change was on the horizon. So when I was reading them eight years ago and then, you know, in order to prep for, these two panel discussions, I reread the books and to, to listen to them or to read them in 2022, knowing that they were written in the eighties and not much has changed. And then to know that actually some of the change that has come about women having a right to privacy over her own body and making decisions between her and her doctor or just her that we're actually reversing that. I think that's one of the reasons why when that news came out, it just really shook me again, knowing that not only was change not happening the way they wrote about back in the 80s, right? But that we were starting to go backwards. We were starting to take away rights that had been granted. And that was just really, I mean, again, it took me a couple of weeks and probably recording five or six episodes that i just deleted and i would just talk it out into the mic and then delete it in order to maybe wrap my head around it i don't know that i've wrapped my head around it i'm just ready now to talk about it so i want to talk for a minute about rianne eisler and she talks about in her book the chalice and the blade she talks about You know, you might think of it as an egalitarian society where the genders are more equal. In her model, she talks about it as a partnership model. And so, you know, she does acknowledge that in a partnership model, there would still be hierarchies, but they would be established by expertise. And so, you know, she kind of talked about how the hierarchy wouldn't be as high of a ladder. Um, So you would see a smaller bump. In that hierarchy than you do in a patriarchal structure and the hierarchy like I said is established by expertise or one through the democratic process where the authority derives their power from the consent of the governed and importantly everybody has access to those positions and it's not eligible based on race or sexual orientation or gender So, I mean, she was writing about these in the 80s. I remember initially when I read them, I was like, why wasn't this required reading in high school? Like, why was I reading The Scarlet Letter and not The Chalice and the Blade? Why was I reading some of these other books and not The Creation of Patriarchy? And at that time, I remember thinking, well, we just need to educate people. We just need to Get more of these books out there. We just need to make them more well-known. People people don't know. I didn't know. So people don't know. We just need to bring about education. When I was rereading the books more recently, I remembered thinking that and just thinking, oh, how naive was I? How blind was I to think that it was a matter of educating people and helping them understand and not more of an issue of willfully keeping reinforcing the structure as it is now rianne eisler has another book called wakening the feminist consciousness something like that and i believe that was by rianne eisler nope that was by gerda lerner that was another book of gerda Lerner's, and she talked about in that book how kind of a similar process maybe for her that we go through and so many women going back through history have gone through where they go through their own struggle much like me struggling to find my own language being blind to some of the structures that are slanted against me as a woman and as a girl and as a female and and kind of coming to my own awakening and and so prior to this part of the book she had talked about just how evolution came you know like let's say you have Uh, man writing a book in the, I don't know, let's say in the 1400s, right? And he writes a book and you know, 50 decades later, maybe a whole lifetime later, somebody else, another male, reads his book, understands kind of where he got to and kind of starts at that point because he's been taught about that book and then takes it another step further or another two steps forward. And then somebody else uh, coming later, again males because we have patriarchy. So another male reads that, understands that, takes it another step further, right? So there's this evolution of our species, there's an evolution of countries, there's an evolution of the world from, you know, one writer to the next writer to the next writer. And, you know, she says so often we think about how women just weren't educated. They didn't know how to write. They didn't have time to write because they were having babies and dying early in childbirth. And so we just don't think of women having written books. But she says women were writing things. They were writing essays. They were writing books. They were thinking. And she said that the tragic part is a woman would have an awakening and find the language to her experience and write that down. You know, maybe it was a book, maybe it was an essay, but it didn't get passed around. It wasn't published. It wasn't well distributed. It wasn't talked about simply because of a female author. And so a hundred years later, another woman blind to her situation, struggling to find the language for her experience comes up with the exact same idea that this previous woman did. And she writes it down again. It's not really passed around nobody knows about it so how does the gender of female evolve when we all just have to keep coming to the same awakening and struggle to find our own language to describe things but nobody else knows about that nobody else our our daughters our granddaughters our great-granddaughters aren't aware of those same struggles that then they're experience they don't know that somebody else felt the same way and wrote it down. That was just heartbreaking to me to think about. So some of the language I discovered back when I was starting my exploration and trying to find language for something that I hadn't realized I didn't have language for was stumbling upon what is referred to as the culture of domesticity. So the culture of domesticity which is often shortened to cult of domesticity or the cult of true womanhood, as it came to be known, is a term that's used by historians to describe what they consider to have been a prevailing value system among upper and middle class women during the 19th century in the United States. So this value system emphasized new ideas. I don't know if they were new, but it emphasized these new ideas of femininity The women's role within the home and the dynamics of work, again, in the home and family. Now, any time that, you know, we kind of talk about history, I think it's important to keep in mind that when we're talking about history, it's written or what we can know about history is that it's written through the eyes of those who were able to write about it, right? And their writings could prevail, So oftentimes, people of color, individuals within the LGBTQ community, and women, both white women and women of color, were in these blind spots of those who were writing about history or whose writing was passed down for us to read and study and and understand as history. And so When we think about this time period where there was the culture of domesticity, it's important, I think, to point out and to understand that this mainly referred to the upper and middle class women during that time period, and many of them had servants who were working in their homes. It never quite applies to those whose economic status would not allow them to practice this cult of domesticity or to practice what these feminine characteristics were described as. So usually black women, the working class women, immigrant women often were excluded from this definition of true womanhood because of their circumstances, because of social prejudices and discrimination. Now, the idea was first advanced by Barbara Welter. And many historians also point out that this subject was far more complex and nuanced than these terms like cult of domesticity or true womanhood can actually represent. But I think it is important to point out a couple of things. First, I think, and many of you might be thinking this as you're listening to this podcast episode, I know that sometimes women can be the harshest reinforcers of patriarchal norms or of sexism or even of misogyny. And so not surprisingly, this idea, this culture of domesticity was first advanced by a female. And when they were talking about the culture of domesticity, let's be a little more detailed about what they were talking about. So it was kind of this idea of the woman's proper sphere or the woman's proper place was in the home. She was supposed to inhabit more of the private sphere while men or spouses, her husband could be out in the public sphere, but she had to be protected from the public sphere and her sphere or her domain was in her home. It's probably something you're not super unfamiliar with, uh, depending on your age. That was something that I was told from the time I was, A young girl and so her interests were about you know like taking care of the home rearing children and taking care of her husband and according to Barbara Welter who was advancing these ideas women or you know true women were to hold and practice what she identified as four cardinal virtues so the first one was piety so, you know, she talked about how women would value religion because unlike intellectual pursuits, it wouldn't take away from a woman's proper sphere. You know, it religion would control a woman's longings, whether those were sexual, whether those were for individuation, whether that was to get out in the workplace. You know, kind of kept her contained in her proper sphere, which was the home. And Many of us are familiar with religions that would do just that. It would control a woman's longing. It would paint a picture of the ideal woman as one who is submissive, which is a different virtue. So I'll just keep going down this list. So the second virtue or characteristic that true women should practice was purity. So again, we're talking about, you know, virginity which is thought of to be a woman's greatest treasure and how that should not be lost until her wedding night where her spouse took it and then a woman would remain committed only to her husband right that this idea of women having a sexual desire or women you know whether they aren't happy in their marriage like the idea of women having a sexual desire which would make her looking apart from her spouse or outside of her role as a wife and mother was, you know, just not something she could not, good women wouldn't do that, right? Or a true woman would not do that. Now, again, sometimes when I'm meeting with clients, my female clients typically were maybe creating a timeline, a relationship timeline. That's one of the things I do with most of my clients. And I'll often hear from some of my women clients who will say, Oh, at this age with this person, I lost my virginity, right? And it just doesn't sound right. And I might say to them like, you know, let's just say this was my first sexual experience. I chose to have a sexual experience with this person. I mean, if that's the case, if that's not the case, then again, you're not losing your virginity. But let's not make the lack of sexual experience something that we put on a pedestal as being something that makes a woman virtuous. The third virtue, which was to be practiced, was submission. And so true women were required to be submissive, obedient, because men were regarded as superior by God's appointment, right? God is the one who set up a patriarchal structure. And then the last one was domesticity, which meant that a woman's proper place was in the home. Her role as a wife was to create a refuge for her husband and children. She would get a lot of meaning and value from cooking, needlework, making the beds, tending her flowers or garden. Those were kind of naturally considered to be feminine activities. And really, if she were interested in reading any books outside of like religious biographies was discouraged. Now, according to Barbara Welter, an ideal true woman was frail, too mentally and physically weak to leave her home. And the care of her home supposedly made her feminine, and she depended on men to protect her within the shelter of it. So again, I think we hear some of that in our current culture, sometimes depending on who your conversations are with. You know, I've talked to some colleagues and friends over the years who were like, patriarchy? I haven't heard that word in like most of my life. Didn't our mother solve that issue? And I'm like, no, let's talk about it, right? I've had colleagues who call me up and are like, I just had this experience and oh my gosh, it was sexist. It, it's like patriarchy. And I'm like, yes, yes, it is. You're welcome. It's not solved. It wasn't something that was figured out by our mother's generations. And so again, sometimes when you, when you start to hear that, um, some of those terms, right? Just how men have to protect women, again that idea that it leads back to this idea that a woman is you know mentally and physically weak and that she needs to be protected she's dependent upon her husband to protect her sometimes when i'm working with men right and they'll talk to me about maybe some of their financial stress or just financial decisions that they're weighing out and trying to decide and i may say you know have you talked with your wife about this and they'll say, well, no, I don't want to like put this on her. I don't want to burden her with this. Again, it kind of goes back to this, like I can't lean on her as a partner, which I think is one of the ways that patriarchy really damages relationships is if the patriarchal structure is a thing, right? And that's how we view the gender roles, then that really does get in the way of Rianne Eisler's partnership model. Like it's in the way of us being partners when a woman has to be frail and weak. She can't be bothered by politics or news. You know, I used to know a lot of women before we moved uh, several years ago, about four years ago, who, you know, if something covered on the news, like a current news story, I knew many women who would just say like, oh, I just can't watch the news anymore. It's just horrible. I just choose not to make that a part of my life. And again, I'm not saying that the news is great or that we should have an obsession with the news, but that whole idea of like, that is too much for me. And I can't be bothered by things that are happening in the public. And I just need to focus on cleaning the house and having a good meal prepared when my husband gets home and getting the laundry done and, you know, getting my kids to school. Like, To me, I'm just like, "Mm, I don't like, I didn't say it because I didn't want to ruffle feathers, but I'm like, do you understand what you're saying about yourself and about our gender? Because I'm not okay with how you're describing our gender. So again, this idea, you know, was agreed to by other women, this culture of domesticity. Other women also got on board and said, yeah, women should be delicate and soft and Weak, right they shouldn't engage in strenuous physical activity which would you know damage their more delicate nervous system again there's no research that backs up that women are weaker or softer or more fragile or have more delicate nervous systems we now know that there's just no research that backs that up now there were also some women who talked about the idea of real womanhood in which women were encouraged to be physically fit and active and get involved in their communities and be well-educated and artistically accomplished. Also maybe within that idea that women were best suited to the domestic sphere, but they should also be physically fit and involved in their communities, well-educated, artistically accomplished. So again, there's it's a little bit more nuanced or complex than the terms capture. But it was a thing, right? And I don't know that it has been closed, that the changes have been made. When you listen to some of the comments that have been made, you can still hear its influence in today's society. Maybe not every day, and maybe depending on where you live and who you talk to, you you know may not see it very often, but it is a thing. And part of me wonders if the Supreme Court decision, if some of the justices who supported reversing Roe have some ideas that maybe they know aren't best to speak. Again, I'm speculating here, but if they're, you know, thinking more of a woman's place being in the home and that she really isn't one to be making public policy or laws or rules. So going back to Rhianne Eisler's partnership model, she also wrote a book, um, Rhianne Eisler also wrote a book called The Real Wealth of Nations. Just a little backstory so you kind of understand that this book was a response to a book written many, many years before Rhianne Eisler lived and wrote this book. And part of her partnership model right talks about as a as a partnership model that we value not only relationships and the characteristics that maybe patriarchy has stripped away from men while giving them to women and then also at the same time criticizing women for having those same attributes. I'm talking about like emotions, like, so we take away a lot of emotions from men and kind of say, hey, if you want to be a real man, you can't have all of these emotions. By the way, those are the same emotions we then give to women and say, women have these emotions and we're going to be critical because women have emotions. And so she talked about um, in her partnership model, how there would be kind of a caring economy, right? That we would value relationship investments. We would value the investment that individuals, whether it was women or men, contributed to child rearing, that we would actually value work done around the home or, you know, whether that's caring for an aging parent, volunteer work, we would actually factor that into our overall economy and and value that instead of just relegating that to women and saying that's what women do and because that's what women do in a patriarchal structure we don't have to value those characteristics and we don't have to value that work and we because we don't really value women women are not rising to the top of leadership now Rhianne Eisler also does mention in this book the real wealth of nations that most of our structures for government currently, whether that's capitalism or socialism, communism, that all of them have led to what she calls dominator societies. So she doesn't necessarily use the word patriarchal society. She uses the word dominator societies instead of a partnership model. You may be more familiar with the idea of a patriarchal structure versus an egalitarian structure. And she talks about how if we were to actually work towards a partnership model, we would have to undo a lot of assumptions that you know we were born into, a lot of the assumptions that we just live in and haven't really looked around and started to question or even see. Sometimes I think that was part of what was so hard for me to find the language around this is I couldn't really see it initially. And even if I were talking to other women, they wouldn't see it. And so that made it difficult for me to have a conversation, which may have led me to finding more of a language around what I was experiencing. So, as I bring this story together, I want to introduce you to one other female, Kate Rayworth. So, Kate Rayworth is an English economist and she's known for her theory of donut economics, which she understands as this economic model that balances uh, essential human needs and planetary boundaries. She's a senior associate at Oxford University and a professor of practice at Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences. Now she has a great TED talk where she kind of breaks this out. She also has a great book where she kind of explains donut economics uh, more in detail if you want to know more about that. So I wanted to introduce you to her as we get into kind of the next piece of this, as we talk about Rianne Eisler's book, The Real Wealth of Nations. So I had mentioned that she wrote this book as a response to a book that was written centuries before her time period. So we're going to go back to, she was actually writing her book, The Real Wealth of Nations, in a response or kind of to... uh, put something out there to counter Adam Smith's book, which has come to be known as The Wealth of Nations. Now there's a longer title. The actual title of his book is An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. And this book was published in 1776. Now who is Adam Smith? Adam Smith was a Scottish economist and philosopher during the 18th century. And so he published this book in 1776, and it was it's considered to be the world's first description of what builds a nation's wealth. Now, this book is still found in economics courses. If you've taken economic courses, you may have been familiar with this book already and familiar with Adam Smith. He is compared um, the contributions he made to his field of economics. He's been compared to Sir Isaac Newton in his contributions to the field of physics or Darwin and his contributions in the field of biology. Now, all three of these men are geniuses, but like we always talk about, they have blind spots. We all have blind spots. Now, again, like I say, a majority of the time, people of color, women, both white and women of color, individuals of the LGBTQ plus community are often in the blind spots when it comes to our history, meaning they were there, they existed, they were part of everyday life and they were actually making contributions and they could be looked past, right? The people who were actually writing and talking about this and have been known to us as we've looked back at history they weren't thinking about them, they weren't writing about that, or how what they were writing about impacted them at all. So if you think about like Aristotle, now Aristotle, you know, we think about his influence on the world, right? So Aristotle was a Greek philosopher and polymath during the classical period in ancient Greece. He was taught by Plato, and he was actually summoned by King Philippe of Macedonia to tutor his son, Alex, who went on to become Alexander the Great. And so when you think of Alexander the Great, you think of him going out and conquering other lands and trying to grow his kingdom. And again, who was he taught by? Well, he was taught by Aristotle. And so a lot of Aristotle's teachings were allowed to expand outside of just what was at one point the borders of Greece as they went and conquered other places. Now, Aristotle was quite misogynistic. If you read much of the, any of his writings where he referenced females, not just sexist, Aristotle was misogynistic. Now, some people would argue that Aristotle wasn't necessarily misogynistic or sexist, but was simply labeling. He labeled women as the inferior sex, and he may have just been interpreting the scientific observations of his time, which again, I I just think for such a great philosopher and for such a genius, if he's simply commenting on the observations of at his time, his time period about women, I. I don't know how one could be so bright and still think that, you know, the culture in which women were subjugated wouldn't have an influence or define the way that you might see them or the way they may actually be and behave. So, but some people do argue that he was just making facts based on that time period and what was known at that time period and what he could observe. I also think that that is often given as a excuse for racism or homophobia or sexism, misogyny, like they were just men of their time, okay? But they were men of their time living with women and living with people of color and they just couldn't be bothered to think about them or think about their perspective. Now, Aristotle, we know, kind of deviated from Plato, although some people will argue that they each just kind of had their own sexist, misogynistic viewpoints that were different from each other. So, for example, some of the things Aristotle talked about, you know, he talked about the Pythagorean theory or the table of opposites, and he said, we find the attributes curving, dark, secret, ever-moving, not self-contained and lacking its own boundaries aligned with female and set over against straight, light, honest, good, stable, self-contained, firmly bounded on the male side. So that's kind of how he saw the genders and saw them as opposites. He also extended this more to the biology of the sexes and talked about how females were fundamentally colder, wet, and more passive biologically and while men were hot, dry, and active. Again, I'm not exactly sure what he's observing scientifically that supports his theories or his arguments, but they also read quite sexist and quite misogynistic. You know, then then we have other people like Karl Marx. I mean, Karl Marx really couldn't have cared less about women at the time. He just wasn't thinking about them. Not that They weren't around, not that he didn't encounter women, but much of his writing dealt with males and just really couldn't even be bothered to think about females who were also living and being at that time period. I think you find this a lot throughout history and it can be somewhat painful when great men, I'm not saying, I don't want to take away from them, but great men who are writing and shaping and influencing our world just couldn't really be bothered to see things from somebody's perspective that was very different than their own, whether that was a woman or a person of color or a person of sexual orientation that was different from them. They just couldn't really, I mean, I, I don't think it ever even occurred to them that they might want to understand that it might be a different perspective or that that different perspective has any merit or value. Now, I mean, I think this extends down into some of our current times. Like um, I remember, you know, reading some of Joseph Campbell's work and really resonating with it and liking it. I mean, I think I've talked about it. I know I talk about it in some of my uh, group work that I am a co-facilitator of and you know, Dr. Patrick Carnes talks a lot about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. And it was, it was heartbreaking when, you know, I was kind of just digging around a little bit more and trying to understand Joseph Campbell and, and came across an interview that he had done where he was asked, like, what about the heroine's journey, right? So he wrote a lot about the hero's journey and they asked him like, what, what about a heroine's journey? What's similar or different, from the hero's journey when we're talking about the heroine's journey and you know i don't remember quote by you know word for word what joseph campbell's answer was but he basically said women don't have a journey like it, it, i've read it a couple of ways so either women are what men are journeying to which again says women are just at home creating this place for men to come and go right and they are the safe harbor or whatever right So women are where men are journeying to, or just the idea that, you know, women just don't have a journey. They're just at home. And can't, shouldn't be bothered with a journey, don't really have a role in developing themselves outside of this private sphere, which would be relegating them to home, childbearing, child-rearing. And you start to see, and Rhianne Eisler makes this point very well in her book, Um, The Real Wealth of Nations, where she says, you know, we start to understand how all of these influencers kind of shaped our thinking into one which is male equals productive and female equals reproductive. And that that's how our value is seen. Females are seen as valuable because they can reproduce. Males are seen as valuable because of how much they can do and how productive they are in advancing, you know, societal causes, which again is very problematic. So, okay, back to Adam Smith and his book, The Wealth of Nations. One of his most, maybe most well-known lines or concepts that comes from his writings, again, his book was published in 1776, So he wrote, quote, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from the regard for their own interests, end quote. So again, his thinking at that time is, you know, people are not generous if there's not something in it for them, right? That the butcher, the brewer, the baker, they're not like doing this because they have a passion for it. They're not doing it out of the generosity or because they want to contribute and make their communities better. They're doing it because they can make money basically, right? They're doing it because there's value in the marketplace for doing this. And that's why people do stuff, right? It's, it's out of self-interest. Now, Kate Rayworth that I mentioned wrote a response to this line in Adam Smith's book, where she said, quote, people don't provide things out of their own generosity, but their own interest. And it is the market that allows this to happen. The wonderful irony is that Adam, meaning Adam Smith, the author, was 43 when he wrote this book. He had never married, so he didn't have a wife or children to raise. So he actually moved back into live with his old mom to write the book. She continues, So imagine if at that very moment he wrote that classic line, his mom had called out, Adam, dinner is on the table. He would have realized, my goodness, my mom is ultimately the one who provides my dinner. He could have invented feminist economics right there and then and realized the importance of unpaid care economy from the get-go. But he didn't. And so it went unnoticed for another two centuries again i just love kind of her spunk in looking at you know her field of expertise in economics and being able to see the problems and the blind spots and to be able to address them as kind of snarky but also brilliantly as she does so rhianne eisler talked about in her book the real wealth of nations where she talked about this care economy. And she, you know, I mean, if if we step back and we look at how many hours are spent by people caring for children, caring for infants, child rearing, spending time reading with kids, going over homework with kids, taking care of aging parents, volunteering, whether that's in the school that their kids are going to whether that's in their communities all of this work that kind of falls under the umbrella of care and caregiving that is unpaid and the fact is we don't know right we don't know how many hours are spent by individuals in our country doing that because we're not gathering that like that is not factored into Our country's GDP, that's not factored into, you know, we're not collecting those hours and then assigning that a wage that we could see, wow, here's how much unpaid work is actually done and the value of that is this dollar amount. We're not looking at that. And again, I think some of that is because what impacts women has largely been able to be dismissed, looked by looked over, have blindness to because of patriarchy. I would say it's because of patriarchy. I don't understand another reason why we have been so blind to that. And Rhianne Eisler talked about how if we actually could give value to care and caregiving instead of just idolizing care and caregiving, right? Like I I feel like I was... I was raised in a church and I raised my daughters for, you know, a couple decades. Well, not two decades, not any of them were two decades. But, you know, I, I raised my kids for at least a decade of their life in the same church that I was raised in with the same teachings and the same doctrines and the same messaging. And I, I think in many ways it idealized motherhood. It idealized women you know, it, it wasn't, it was more, much more benevolent patriarchy where, you know, it didn't just see women as completely inferior. Um, I mean, it wouldn't think to give women any real authority on their own, but it also saw value in women. But I think it also put women on a pedestal and it put mothering on a pedestal. You know, I, I remember when I had three kids, so my third daughter kind of, you know, I, I will tell her I always planned on having a third child, just not on the timetable when she arrived. And so my second and third daughter are pretty close in age. They're 15 months apart. And so I had three kids and my oldest was three. That was a really hard time as a mom. And there were many days where I was thinking the women in my life have lied to me. They've lied to me about mothering. They've lied to me about how it feels to be a mother. Like I've been, my kids have wiped their nose on me. They've vomited on me. They've pooped on me. Like none of this was talked about when I got the messaging from being a young girl that this was the best thing that I could ever aspire to be. Now again, I, I have my own feelings about motherhood and I am grateful for the opportunity that I had to parent four kids and see them into their young adult years, which is where they are now. But I also had a pretty hands-on partner who was also parenting our four daughters. And, you know, I had a career and I worked and there were times he was a solo parent at home with the kids. Not that he didn't have a job, right, but just the way our schedules were You know, sometimes when he was working, I was home with the kids. When I was working, he was home with the kids. And that's just what a typical week looked like. And so it wasn't left to me and only me. He also experienced very similar things as a parent. And the messaging was different, right? He was praised. He was told how amazing he was. Just the messaging we both got, being in those circumstances... Varied, even though the experiences we had weren't all that different. Because again, a, a young baby doesn't care who they vomit on. They don't care if it's mom or dad. They just are going to vomit. Now, Rianne Eisler talked about if we could show government and business leaders the benefits of policies that support caring and caregiving and work for their adoption, we would see so many improvements in our cultures. In our communities in our society in our individuals in our families she talked about how you know in this partnership model there would be not just an investment in individuals and in relationships but also an investment in the planet an investment in the land that we live on the land that we benefit from and we wouldn't just simply exploit that in caring and caregiving we would also be caring and caregiving for things of nature. Now, Kate Raworth also talks about this. So, you know, she talks about humanity's 21st century challenge is to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. So in other words, to ensure that no one falls short on life's essentials, which she defines as food, housing, healthcare, and a political voice, while ensuring that collectively we do not overshoot our pressure on Earth's life-supporting systems, on which we all fundamentally depend, such as a stable climate, fertile soils, and a protective ozone layer. And she kind of goes into this in her book, The Donut of Social and Planetary Boundaries, which was published and released in 2017. Now, she talks about the importance of how we have economics that need to grow whether or not they make us thrive as individuals and she says what we need is economics that make us thrive whether or not we grow and that we're at that point where we cannot just keep growing because where we're at now is an exploitive point that we just can't maintain and so what we need is for individuals to thrive And not necessarily focus on growth so this is one of the things that i i feel like i really struggled with as i tried to grapple with a world in which these constitutional rights that women have depended on they've come to rely on and that so many of us maybe took for granted i mean i know in the past decade there's been kind of a strong beat of the drum on the right to ending a woman's access to abortion and her choice over over her body right bodily autonomy I think that is that right that has existed for women there's been a slow drumbeat to change that and to overturn those rights that women gained and I think you know one of the things as I talked to some of my friends about this as I listen to clients talk about this, as I listen to, you know, some of the podcasts, uh, as I listen to things, one of the thoughts I kept having, you know, I, I would hear some of my friends or some of my clients even would say like, we're going back to the 1950s, right? In terms of what women's progress looked like or what women's lives looked like. We're going back to, you know, pre all of this, like second wave feminism. And one of the thoughts that was troubling me and I kept going back to is we're not going back anywhere. Like we've never in our country been at a place that we find ourselves right now where rights that had been given are now being taken away. You know, in the fifties, this right hadn't been given to women. We, it hadn't, it wasn't a constitutional protection And I understand, you know, it was on some shaky legal ground. I think that's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued for when she would argue for passing the Equal Rights Amendment, which would, you know, add an amendment to our Constitution that said that genders had to be treated equally, that there could not be discrimination based on gender. And that didn't pass. It still has not passed. And I think it's because, you know, that would make a woman's bodily autonomy, more of a right than, you know, the way that Roe was passed, it was more of a privacy issue versus a equality issue. And so, you know, I I think she saw the potential for politicians to overturn this longstanding legal precedence and to take back rights that were given and came to just be part of our society and even had a popular favor, right? Like they access to abortion and pretty unlimited access to abortion has had the majority of opinions in its favor for quite some time. You know, it it had an approval rating upwards of like 60%, in some instances closer to 70% in this country. And so again, to... To reverse that, when it's popular, when it's working for the most part, we've never we've never been here, and you know that's what I keep thinking. This is going to take some really heartbreaking stories of women who lose their lives because of a pregnancy, orphan their children. I, I mean, this is gonna it's gonna take some women who fall into this model of being a good woman, right? Living by what we think that women should live by in order to be good women. It's going to take them paying the price for us to see how wrong and ugly this can be. I mean, very shortly after Roe v. Wade was reversed, we saw a case of a 10-year-old girl who became pregnant because of a rape. And you know, so many people on the right were saying that's not even true. It's not even real. It's, and it turns out it was, and they were able to arrest the man who had raped this 10 year old child. Now, maybe what got more press in the news was how the Indiana, so I think the 10 year old lived in Ohio and couldn't get an abortion because she was like a couple of days over their limit on when a woman could obtain an abortion. And so, you know, it had to, she had to travel to Indiana. They had to make arrangements for her to go to Indiana in order to obtain a legal abortion. And the doctor in Indiana provided a legal abortion according to their state laws and got harassed. And the Indiana attorney general threatened to sue this doctor and come after this doctor. And she had to deal with the public outcry and how ugly that can be when she's simply practicing according to her code of ethics as a physician, practicing good medicine. And I think, you know, we heard more about this 10-year-old and more about the doctor performing the abortion than we did the rapist who impregnated a 10-year-old girl. I just don't think our country has ever done well when it comes to rape. We don't see it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to believe that good men good young men can commit rape, that good men can commit rape, that they can be rapists. We just have never gotten it right. And often when they are caught, we don't want their life to be ruined, you know? And so they get lighter sentences and we just don't really understand the impact of rape on other people's lives. We don't understand that like getting caught and getting a light sentence doesn't necessarily reduce the likelihood that they may go on to reoffend. Anyway, that's another tangent that I can go down that I have been going down in my mind. And so, again, for me, I mean, I've been pro choice for a long time, most of my adult life, I think all of my adult life, and probably even before that, you know, high school years when I was thinking about it or knew about it, right? And to me, I've been asked by some of the women in my church, some of my neighbors who um, were in my church, and I would be asked, like, how can you be pro-choice? And again, I think it's a brilliant strategy for pro-life and the political right to make it about babies because who doesn't love babies? But often it's not about a baby, right? And when abortions occur, the majority of them are happening before it's ever really a fetus or a baby, right? But when we put the face of a baby on abortion, it looks pretty dark and it looks like something that needs to stop, that's awful in our society. To me, you know, and this is what I've told my neighbors and other women at church for decades, pro-choice simply means that no matter what my personal feelings or beliefs about abortion are which I have never been in a situation where abortion needed to happen you know I had four healthy pregnancies they weren't comfortable pregnancies but they were healthy pregnancies my life was not at risk my unborn child was not at risk so I've never been in that position but regardless of what my personal feelings or beliefs about abortion are I understand it's not my place to make a decision for another woman about what she can and cannot do with her body. That's simply my choice, right? And many of them will say, why are you pro-abortion? And I'll say, I am not pro-abortion. Nobody nobody I know is pro-abortion. Nobody is out there holding signs and campaigning for abortion, right? We are pro-choice saying, My personal feelings don't, which I've never even been in this circumstance, but that does not dictate what I believe another woman has to do. And I wonder, I wonder, as more women have been elected into Congress, as we have more women in the workplace, we have more women obtaining education, we have more women doing things than In the past I wonder if the reversal of Roe has to do with some of the assumptions made about what a woman's role is and what a woman's role is not and if we are actually blind to the plight of women now let me tell you why I think we might be blind to the plight of women and why it really concerns me so we're gonna go back on some just dumb things that we're going to start with politicians then we're going to look at business leaders because again Ryan Eisler was saying if we could convince you know our leaders and our business leaders politicians and our business leaders about the benefits of policies that you know see the value of care and caregiving then you know things might be different so in this was in what year was it let me find the year really quick 2015 So in 2015, an Idaho state representative, Vito Barbieri, I think is how you say that name, wondered aloud during an actual legislative debate over a proposed abortion bill if a woman could swallow a camera for a gynecological exam. Now, he was pretty swiftly and politely corrected by a female physician who was in attendance for that debate, who had to point out to him that... If you swallow something and it goes into your stomach, the stomach is not actually connected to the gynecology of a woman, right? Like you cannot from the stomach, you can't swallow a camera that goes into a woman's stomach and from there see her genitalia and what's happening in the uterus. Like that's just those two things are not the same thing. And sometimes, I mean, I have to say, I wonder if we're really this bad. I mean, I think we might be really this bad at teaching sex education and human anatomy, female anatomy. I do think that is completely plausible, maybe probable. And I also wonder if sometimes they're saying these things and they just don't. Like they, they know better, but they just say these things to benefit a cause. That's a hard place to be where you're like, either we're really, really this uninformed or we're really, really this corrupt that we'll say crazy things to benefit our own agenda. Another Idaho Senator, Chuck Winder, back in 2012, so a little bit further back, when he was talking about rape and abortion, Made the statement, quote, I would hope that when a woman goes into a physician with a rape issue, that physician will indeed ask her about perhaps her marriage. Was this pregnancy caused by normal relations in a marriage or was it truly caused by rape? End quote. So again, I'm not sure what he's talking about when women go into their doctors with a rape issue. Not sure what a rape issue is. Is it a pregnancy Is that what we're talking about, or is there some other rape issue that, you know, a woman's talking to her doctor about? And again, the other side of this comment that was made is, you know, that maybe this pregnancy or this rape issue, sorry, was caused by normal relations in a marriage. Well, that would suppose that a woman who is married could never be raped by her spouse. And, you know, for a long time, we didn't believe that. We believed that if a husband and wife were legally married, a husband had a right to sex and he could not rape his wife because they're married, right? So, of course, he can have sex whenever he wants to. But in 1993, so again, not very long ago, in 1993, federally, I mean, there were some states that had passed laws recognizing marital rape. Prior to 1993, Utah passed a law in 1993 and then federally in 1993, it was passed into law that a husband could in fact rape his wife, that just because he was married did not mean he could not sexually assault his wife or commit rape. Now a Montana judge, Montana district judge, G. Todd Baugh, I think this was also in 2012, was overseeing a case of a 14-year-old girl who was raped by her teacher, who at the time of the incident was 47 years old. So 14-year-old girl, 47-year-old teacher. Now the judge said he wasn't sure how, quote, real, end quote, the rape was when you considered that this girl acted, quote, older than her chronological age. End quote. Now again, in many states, 14-year-olds aren't even legally able to consent to sexual relations. So it doesn't really matter if she's acting older than her chronological age. If her age is 14, she can't consent in many states, maybe in most states. Also, 47-year-old teacher, definitely a 47-year-old teacher should know that sex with a 14 year old student of his is not okay. And it doesn't matter if you think she acts older for her age, that doesn't mean you can groom her and have sexual relationships with her. Now, at the time that this judge was pondering on this, he was talking about a deceased person because the 14 year old girl had actually died by suicide years before the case actually came to trial. Fortunately, that judge has since retired. Now, in 2015, talking about uh, marital rape, so there was a law written, you know, in the legal definition in Utah. It was kind of a confusingly written law with like a double negative, if I'm remembering correctly. So it was kind of like if your wife did not not, like give consent or something like that right which is just a weird wording and could easily create some loopholes when we're saying if your wife did not not give consent Um, so one of the female legislatures had proposed a bill that would clean up this vague language and just kind of say like if a person is unconscious if a person cannot give consent at the time because they're unconscious or whatever, then that would be considered rape. And so this was being debated on the legislative floor. This was again back in 2015. And one of the representatives, Brian Green, uh, wondered aloud in this debate and seemed, seemed alarmed as the language was being talked about and as what this bill was seeking legal clarification on came into more focus and so he said quote if an individual has sex with their wife while she's unconscious a prosecutor could then charge that spouse with rape theoretically that makes sense in a first date scenario but to me not where people have a history of years of sexual activity end quote fortunately this bill eventually did pass and it passed unanimously but no brian green it doesn't matter if you've had years of a sexual history with this woman if she's not conscious she cannot consent to that sexual experience and so she may have consented to hundreds of other sexual experiences with you but if she's not conscious she can't consent to that one now there were prosecutors who were there from the utah prosecution council who you know kind of added to this debate and wanted to clarify saying you know consent is a decision that has to be made at the time of the act and so therefore you cannot give consent to sexual activity if you're unconscious and there has to be consent every time not just like the first time you give consent and then it's like a life pass for any sexual activity after that because you gave consent the first time that's just not how that works now, he later tried to clarify what he meant. I don't know that he helped himself, but he said, quote, I'm not at all trying to justify sexual activity with an unconscious person. It's abhorrent to me. But he questioned whether sex with an unconscious person should be rape in every instance. Dependent, he said, only upon the actor's knowledge that the individual is unconscious. That's the question. That's what I struggle with. So again, I don't know that he helped himself because yes, Brian Green, the person, the actor has to know if the person is conscious or not. It is on him or her, whatever. It is on the person initiating sex. It is on them to determine if the person is actually conscious before proceeding with sexual activity. Now, Holly Mullen, who at the time was the director of the Rape Recovery Center, said, quote, instead of dicing and parsing and saying, well, what about a wife if she's asleep? Just look at what is happening and the prevalence of sexual assault in our world. It's a tool of power. That might be why they're parsing. They don't want to look at what is really going on around them, end quote. Now, actually, also in the room when this debate was taking place was the vice president of Beta Theta Pi, who was a male, and he commented and said, quote, I think it's important. He said, quote, as a male, I think it's important to hold other males accountable for the decisions that they make. Regardless of their relationship with somebody, that does not imply consent, end quote. So again, like I said, fortunately, that bill passed and it passed unanimously. And so the vagueness or the Double negative was cleared up and the law was more clearly stated, which is always good. Now, Rick Santorum made another comment about rape that, again, just makes me, you know, while many of these people are very sensitive to the idea of terminating a pregnancy, they do not seem as sensitive to the idea of a victim of sexual assault or rape. So according to Rick Santorum, he talked about you know how, yes, rape is a bad thing, but he said a woman can also, quote, make the best of a bad situation, end quote. Maybe, maybe, but again, we would need to support far more mental health services than our country currently supports. Texas Representative Jodi Lobenberg offered her thoughts on the concept of abortion in cases of rape. And she said, quote, in the emergency room, they have what's called rape kits where a woman can get cleaned out, end quote. No, no, that's not what rape kits are. Rape kits are designed to collect evidence. They are not designed to end pregnancies. They're not designed to clean a woman out. Whatever that means, whatever she was implying by that, that's actually not what rape kits do. Mike Huckabee Said rape is quote inexcusable and indefensible, but it can also produce top notch humans. Again, I'm not saying some great people can't be their conception, can't be the result of a rape, and they can still turn out to be really great people. I just think these comments make light of sexual assault and what a victim experiences. After a sexual assault, we're making light of that while also taking very seriously ending a pregnancy. And who can forget Missouri Congressman Todd Akin, former Missouri Congressman Todd Akin back in 2012, when he made comments saying abortions wouldn't be necessary for rape victims. His quote was, quote, if it's legitimate rape, the female body has ways to try to shut the whole thing down, end quote. Again, not true. Like, there's nothing in the female anatomy that can shut down that process or just automatically flips the switch if it's a legitimate rape. Also, you know, what does he mean, legitimate rape? Because many were concerned by his comments saying that, you know, so some rape victims... Are legitimate while others deserve it or it's not a legitimate rape like what exactly is he implying there so you know again he tried to clarify his comments and defend his comments and his thoughts and didn't necessarily help himself when he said quote legitimate rape is a law enforcement term it's an abbreviation for legitimate case of rape end quote He, well, he went on and said, quote, a woman calls a police station, the police investigate. She says, I've been raped. They investigate that. So before any of the facts are in, they call it a legitimate case of rape, end quote. That's how he explained his comments that, oh, I just got it confused with this law enforcement term. Now, you know, journalists, as they can do, tried to verify if that's true. And so they interviewed Police officers, veteran police officers, police officers who, you know, have been 50 years in law enforcement, trained other police officers on every continent in the world, right? And they said, I've never heard of that term. Never, right? Some who were 30 years experienced said, you know, I'm qualified to testify in federal court on the way to investigate a sexual assault crime. And I've never heard that term. So again, some of the people who are actually working in law enforcement and can actually testify or teach how to investigate sexual assault are saying, no, that's not a law enforcement term. That's not a term that we use. And even if it had been, again, we don't talk about rape well in our country. So even if it was a law enforcement term, which it is not, it's not an appropriate way to talk about sexual assault victims. And it does make one think that, you know, he's victim blaming. Now, again, he kind of said it's taken out of context. It's blown out of proportion, um, that it was intentionally misunderstood and twisted for political purposes. And again, later, after these comments were made, he was on another interview kind of putting out his latest book at the time and kind of talking about that. And he was asked, in an interview, point blank, whether rape victims should be allowed to have abortions and if they get pregnant, right? Should rape victims be allowed to have abortions if they get pregnant? And he turned it around and just answered a question by asking a different question. And the question he asked was, quote, should the child conceived in rape have the same right to live as a child conceived in love, end quote. Again, I don't know of any law that we have where a woman is asked to sacrifice her body, you know, give it to somebody else for nine months. We just don't have laws where somebody else's body can be hijacked against their will for any length of time. He continued to say, quote, I had a number of people in my campaign that were children who were conceived in rape. When this was reported, they said the assertion was not immediately verifiable, But Chuck Todd, who was doing the interview with Aiken, pointed out that if staffers who were conceived in rape, like if you actually had staffers who were conceived in rape, wouldn't that disprove your theory that if it's a legitimate rape, a woman's body shuts that down? Again, he said, yes, according to logic, but I believe all little children are special. Again, what what answer is that? I don't know what that answer is when your theory is basically shown to be crazy. And then shortly after, I mean, I think it was the same day that Roe was overturned, a Republican lawmaker in the state of Utah had tweeted about how glad she was to see uh, the Supreme Court reverse Roe. And I think from what I understand, there was a constituent who had, you know, maybe tweeted in response to her tweet, I'm not sure, saying that, She doesn't trust women, right? Like that, and that maybe she should try to control men's ejaculations instead of trying to control women's bodies, something to that effect, or instead of trying to control women's pregnancies, right? That she should try to seek to control men's ejaculations and not women's pregnancies. And she told reporters about this text message that she got during a news conference and She said that this message, this text message that she had received, it wasn't a tweet, a retweet, but it said that the message suggested, quote, that I clearly don't trust women enough to make choices to control their own body, end quote. And then she continued again to try to help herself and bring more context to her comments, which once again did not work out well. And she said, quote, and my response is, I do trust women enough to control when they allow a man to ejaculate inside of them and to control that intake of semen, end quote. Again, that's not anatomically possible. Like there's not a way for women to control the intake of semen if a male ejaculates inside of her. Also, let's talk about whether or not a woman always has a choice as to whether or not a man ejaculates inside of her. And that brings us into, you know, kind of current terminology where we talk about stealthing, which is, you know, a woman who is consenting to sex, but she's consenting thinking that the male is wearing a condom and so it's protected sex and that, you know, she's not consenting to risking becoming pregnant. And in stealthing, a male removes the condom before ejaculating inside of a woman, right? And, and it doesn't, the woman is not aware of that. So again, she's consenting to sex, but she's not consenting to the risk of becoming pregnant because of the way that they're having sex. And then we don't want to forget some of what our former president said about women, not necessarily women's bodies, but just about women in general. And what he has said over his lifespan, over his years of being an adult, how he became president, I don't understand. So in 2005, he said this quote, which again was released during his 2016 presidential campaign. And I'm not going to quote it exactly. Quote, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful women. I just start kissing them. Not appropriate. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. When you're a star, they let you do it. And then I'm sure you all know the rest of that quote. Now, when he was talking about Republican primary rival, Carly Fiorina, he said, quote, look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? Can you imagine that? The face of our next next president? I mean, she's a woman and I'm not supposed to say bad things, but really, folks, come on, are we serious? end quote. He also talked about his parenting theory when he said, this was in an interview with Howard Stern back in 2005, he said, quote, I like kids. I mean, I won't do anything to take care of them. I'll supply funds and she'll take care of the kids. It's not like I'm going to be walking the kids down Central Park, end quote. On Twitter in 2012, he said, quote, about Ariana Huffington, quote, Ariana Huffington is unattractive, both inside and out. I fully understand why her former husband left her for a man. He made a good decision, End quote. During the vice presidential debate in 2020, he said, quote, Kamala Harris is this monster that was on stage with Mike Pence, who destroyed her last night, by the way, which is a lie. I thought there wasn't even a contest last night. She was terrible. I don't think you could get worse and totally unlikable. End quote. This was a leaked recording back in 1992. He was commenting about a 10-year-old girl. He said, quote, I'm going to be dating her in 10 years. Can you believe it? End quote. When he was being interviewed with Fox Business Network in 2020, he was talking about New York Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and said, quote, this is not even a smart person, other than she's got a good line of stuff. I mean, she goes out and she yaps, end quote. In 2004, in his book, How to Get Rich, he said, quote, all of the women on The Apprentice flirted with me, consciously or unconsciously. That's to be expected, end quote. He also said on Twitter in 2015 of his presidential rival, Hillary Clinton, quote, if Hillary Clinton can't satisfy her husband, what makes her think she can satisfy America? End quote. About his daughter, Ivanka, he said, quote, she does have a very nice figure. I've said if Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. End quote. About his wife, he said, quote, she's not giving me 100%. She's giving me 84%. And 16% is going towards taking care of children. End quote. On women in a New York magazine, article in 1992, he said, quote, you have to treat them like shit, end quote. Trump also blamed sexual assaults on women in the army on the fact that men and women were working together. Quote, 26,000 unreported sexual assaults in the military, only 238 convictions. What did these geniuses expect when they put men and women together, end quote. So again, that's, you know, our former president, that's not even all of the incredibly sexist and poorly informed statements he has made about women about mothers but let's look at some business leaders so the american apparel ceo for years was known as being sexist sexually harassing female employees and somehow continued to dodge any repercussions And people were just expected, mostly women, were just expected to, you know, put up with his behavior because he had so much power as the CEO of American Apparel. And so he eventually was fired. And when, you know, the the board kind of really finally looked into it, they found there was much more than just sexist behavior or sexual harassment. So the founder of American Apparel was finally ousted. His name is Dave Charney. He used ethnic slurs against workers. He kept videos on a company server of himself in sex acts with models and employees. He used to walk around the company in his underwear. He often said, you can't help it if you sleep with attractive employees. Company investigators discovered voluminous evidence of his sexual liaisons with employees and models. And the company said he also sent employees emails with pornographic videos and photos. And, you know, again, that he had used ethnic slurs against certain employees. When he used sexual slurs, he said that it was a compliment and that women liked hearing those things about themselves. His attorneys, of course, are claiming that The company has engaged in an invasion of his privacy, and that they're simply trying to extort him and gain leverage over him. Which, usually, when somebody's a CEO and is sexist and racist, is actually what they're doing to their employees. Now, in the tech industry, it's known to kind of be a brutal place for women, and not just because of the pay gap that happens. CNN is reporting that women are leaving the tech world because of blatant discrimination. Not because they're not good at what they do, but because of the discrimination that they face in the field. According to a 2008 Harvard Business Review research report, 41% of the young people in science, engineering, and technology are women. But 52% of them leave the field due to its machismo nature. The report also found that 63% of women in these industries had experienced some degree of sexual harassment. Now, just some of the things that some of the male public figures, CEOs of the businesses, the tech businesses, have said about women in business. So Microsoft CEO Nadella had said that it's, quote, good karma, end quote, for women to refrain from asking for a raise he continued quote it's not really about asking for a raise but knowing and having faith that the system will give you the right raise end quote again that's not what our system has shown women so he continued to go on and said that quite frankly women who don't ask for a raise it's good karma it will come back now he later apologized for these comments in a memo to microsoft employees evan thornley who was presenting at a Sydney startup conference said on one of his slides in the presentation, so one of his PowerPoint slides in the presentation had the title, women, colon, like men, only cheaper. Now, when he was specifically talking about hiring and that you know, pay gap that happens, he said, women are, quote, still often relatively cheap compared to what we would have had to pay someone less good of a different gender. Now, later he backpedaled about what he meant and what he was saying, but that was pretty clear what he was saying is that you can get women who are better at their job and pay them less than what you had to if you hired a male. Now, a Toronto editor, Lindsay Kirkham, overheard some sexist comments from IBM executives and she live tweeted this saying, quote, apparently IBM doesn't like hiring young women because they are just going to get themselves pregnant again and again and again, end quote. She also said in an interview that these guys, quote, discussed holidays and how women needed more time to download and decompress from work-related stress, end quote. They didn't go on to say if some of that stress was gender inequality and gender discrimination that they had to download and decompress from. The Tinder co-founder, Whitney Wolfe filed a high-profile lawsuit against her co-founder and former love interest Justin Mateen, alleging gender discrimination and sexual harassment. So according to Whitney Wolf, Mateen had said that, quote, he was taking away her co-founder title because having a young female co-founder makes the company seem like a joke, end quote. They did settle that lawsuit without admission of wrongdoing. In a speech given at a 2005 economics conference, former Harvard President Lawrence H. Summers reportedly cited, quote, innate differences, end quote, between men and women as part of the reason why female scientists are underrepresented at elite universities. So again, I don't think we have to say it at this point, but he later claimed that his comments were taken out of context and tried to, you know, backpedal what he was saying and basically say something else. So again, I think Rhianne Eisler has a point in which if we can help the leaders, the political leaders in our country, the business leaders in our country understand the benefit of valuing care and caregiving, one might think we may have less male leaders, which may also help out this point, her point of improving our society by valuing caring and caregiving but I wanted to end with this but you know since I've had to record this particular outline of this episode three times now there's actually some news that came out at the end of May I wasn't aware of it at the end of May I only heard about it maybe two weeks ago and so I thought you know I had read a couple of articles about it and thought Maybe that's a good note to end on better than what I had ended on, which wasn't necessarily very positive or optimistic. I don't remember exactly what I said in the end, but I just wasn't feeling all that positive or optimistic about what this means. Where exactly are we we headed as a country when it comes to women? And And let's not be mistaken that when we talk about women, we're talking about children. That doesn't mean that I believe all women should have children or all women are mothers, whether they have children or not, because again, sexist. But when you talk about the future of women, you are talking about the future of children as well. So I have a hard time grasping how the Supreme Court thinks that they're reversing a policy in order to benefit children while hurting women. Because that's not how our culture works. That's not how patriarchy works, right? What is good for women is good for children. And what's good for women tends to be good for the world. Policies that are good for women tend to be good for the world. Now, the story I want to end with. So it's a case that goes back more than three centuries. So we're going back to Salem, Massachusetts during the witch trials. So 20 people from Salem and the neighboring towns were killed and hundreds of others were accused during a frenzy of Puritan injustice that began in 1692. It was stoked by superstition, fear of disease and strangers, scapegoating, and petty jealousies. So 19 people were hanged and one man was crushed to death by rocks. So a woman, Elizabeth Johnson Jr., had also been accused of being a witch. She was 22 years old and she got caught up in the hysteria of the witch trials and she was sentenced to hang. Now, that didn't happen because the governor at that time, William Phipps, threw out her punishment as, you know, the the magnitude of these gross miscarriages of justice Began to sink in, and people started to realize that, you know, the horror of what had been happening with these accusations. And so she was sentenced, she was accused, and she was found guilty, and she was sentenced. The sentence just didn't actually carry out. And so, for some reason, her name wasn't included in different legislative attempts that there have been to set the record straight and to clear people, obviously, like centuries later. Um, were clearing their name and kind of reversing what they were accused of. But she wasn't among those. And so her conviction technically still stood. Unlike the others who had been wrongfully accused, Elizabeth Johnson never had any children and so she had no descendants to act on her behalf and to try to bring attention to her and to clear her name until there was a teacher of an eighth grade class in North Andover Middle School. And she and her class took up this cause. They wanted to clear Elizabeth's name. The teacher is Carrie LaPierre, and she and her students championed the cause that this teacher gave them. Many, you know, continued with this because it wasn't like a quick process. So many continued after they moved on from the eighth grade. They ended up getting State Senator Diana DiZaglio, who was a Democrat, and she tacked it onto a budget bill that got approved. And so in May of 2022, lawmakers agreed to reconsider her case and they took up her cause and the fifth graders researched the legislative steps that they would need to go through in order to clear this woman's name. So on May 26th of 2022, the legislation came before the state and Elizabeth Johnson Jr. was formally exonerated, which cleared her name 329 years after she was convicted of witchcraft in 1693. So she was the last one to have her name cleared. The teacher said, quote, we will never be able to change what happened to victims like Elizabeth, but at the very least can set the record straight. Actually, that wasn't said by the teacher. That was said by the state senator. The teacher, the quote by the teacher said, quote, passing this legislation will be incredibly impactful on the student's understanding of how important it is to stand up for people who cannot advocate for themselves and how strong of a voice they actually have. End quote. The state senator, Diana DeZoglio, ended the story saying, quote, Elizabeth's story and struggle continue to greatly resonate today. While we've come a long way since the horrors of the witch trials, women today still all too often find their rights challenged and their concerns dismissed, end quote. So hats off to these eighth graders and to their eighth grade teacher who inspired them to take up a case where a woman had been wrongly accused and her conviction stood for centuries. And these students didn't forget her. And the teacher inspired them to understand how government works and to take the necessary steps in order to clear this woman's name and to bring exoneration to her. Again, unfortunately, there are parallels and this story released before the news of the Supreme Court decision was released. And so again, we see many parallels as this state senator said. There's a lot about this story that continues to resonate today. And I just want to end quoting her again, quote, While we've come a long way since the horrors of the witch trials, women today still, all too often, find their rights challenged and concerns dismissed. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.